Hey guys, it's Chris Bircher, and this is Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom. I'm still investigating the R versus Should problem, and this is episode 62, the R versus Should problem, change. This has been a topic that's been on my mind, and I just had the opportunity to guest host on a podcast about, or to guest interview on a podcast about step parenting, and we talked a little bit about change and, and, and sort of what I want to get to, and there's other things that have been going on in my life right now that... Uh, I just need to get, I I have realized that this is a fundamental problem associated with the R versus should problem or something that complicates it for sure. And probably a little bit about something that will go into the how do we fix this. Um, And one of the things that drives me nuts about the world, and I'm currently writing a post for on Medium, which I just started doing about why banks are so big and sort of the banking industry and the insurance industry. And and my my thoughts are we need to change this. There's something wrong with the world that insurance policies cost so much, and yet people that sell insurance make so much money. That's wrong, right? There's there's a problem there. We can make the policies cost less, and and that's a huge one because there's so much wrong, especially with the United States healthcare system. That just I, I can't even begin to solve that problem. The point is we see things in the world that. Are problems, and we go, oh, this is a problem. All right, let's change it. And then we say, oh, we can't change it. It's 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 too big. You know, we can't stop selling coal because all the people that work in the coal industry won't have jobs, so we have to keep selling coal. Sorry, all the cars run on gasoline, so we can't switch to solar. Sorry, we can't change. It's too hard. I'm 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 really tired of that answer. Uh, I don't believe it. I think it's bullshit. And I think you're covering up for somebody. What you're saying is there's too many people that make money off of whatever this is. And so we're not going to change it because we don't want the shareholders to complain about not making money anymore. So I just don't buy not being able to change. Now, I think we're resistant to change for a lot of different reasons that are related to the should problem because we think we should be resistant to change because change is bad, people. Change is bad. We don't want stuff to be the same. And think about the comfort zone analogy, right? A human being is a luminous egg surrounded by this envelope, what we call our comfort zone. As we push close to that comfort zone and get into doing things we're not that aware of or don't know much about, we are we become aware that we're changing and we retreat back to the middle of our comfort zone, right? We're safe in the center of our comfort zone, because that's where everything's predictable and everything is the same and the, the, like the opposite of change, right? We've reduced change to some uh, possible <laughs> minimum. And so we're cool with that. But as you get close to the edge of your comfort zone, that's where change happens. But you know what? That's also where the magic happens. That's where personal growth happens. That's where new experiences happen. That's where you find out that you like spaghetti with meatballs. That's where you find out that you like jazz music. That's where you find out that, you know, this person that you thought was a buddy might be somebody that you're quite attracted to or could be a good partner for you. But unless we push ourselves to change, we don't ever have any of those experiences. And what would life be like with no experiences? My oldest daughter is struggling a little bit because she's just gone off to college officially for the first time and sort of living in an apartment because with COVID, she didn't really have that. And she's struggling. And I'm like, good for you. Congratulations. You have an opportunity to change yourself and grow. That's incredible. And now I'm sympathetic about how difficult that is because change is hard. 
It makes us uncomfortable. It makes it triggers physiological reactions like shivering and chills and discomfort and fear that we don't want to deal with. Uh, that and, and and sure, a life absent discomfort is more comfortable by definition. But you know that's not what humans were meant to do. And so some of the complaints we have about change is that we can't predict it. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't say if we switch our vehicles to solar power or battery power from gasoline powered, that it's going to be better. We don't know that, right? We don't know if it's going to be better or worse. We don't know. We can't predict the future. But because we can't predict the future, you can't tell me that if we change something, it's going to get worse. You don't know that. So that's, it's kind of a double-edged sword there. It's, it's both reassuring and more scary when we say you can't predict the future with change. But generally, we just say it's too hard or that we think bad things are going to happen. But let's just lay it out there that change means things are going to be different, and we don't know how it's going to be different because we can't predict the future. And if something changes for the worse, then we have to deal with that. We might be in a, worse off than we were at the beginning, but... There's also the, the chance that things might change for the better and there might be improvement. But the key is, as humans, when we see that something is wrong, and more than just like, that doesn't look right, but like time and time again, like I really can't believe that there are people that are homeless that want to work. How do we solve that problem? Again and again and again, you see it you say there's this problem. That's like a big giant sign saying, hey, change is needed here. This is where, right here, you need to change something associated with this to address this problem. And maybe it won't eliminate it. Maybe in the short term, it won't fix it. But until we accept the fact that change is necessary and make an attempt to do something about it, there's one guarantee. Ain't nothing going to change. And that isn't right, right? Because life is about change. You know, in the, in the context of the R versus should problem, I talked about our DNA and evolution. If there's anything we know about life is that it changes. If there's anything we know about the universe is that it changes. If there's anything that we know about biology is that it changes. That's one thing. And so to ever deny that is ridiculous. Talk about swimming upstream or fighting against the system or guaranteeing you a crappy result. If you know something is wrong, that means a change is needed. And you know that change is cool because change is part of the world. And so why would you, why the resistance? And I think that's why this exists in the realm of the R versus should problem. We don't change because we think that's what we should do. Because we've been told by so many people, entities, corporations that change is bad. Because on one hand, Change is bad for corporations because it changes the predictability of the world. We come outside of the middle of our comfort zone into the, and welcome all these different things that are happening. And when different things happen, we don't know what the future is. And if we can't predict the future, we can't predict how much money we're going to make, right? So there's part of this that's nefarious or, or kind of evil that we want to, um, we want to diminish change and avoid change because it creates problems for money making. <laughs> but that's not the only reason. You know, we're just resistant to change because we're resistant to being uncomfortable. We're not we're not good at feeling that that feeling of I don't know what's going to happen. The first time I 
the, the perfect metaphor for that, the unpredictability of the future and this change and this is, is I read for the first time in Don Juan, Teachings of Don Juan, A Yaki Way of Knowledge, the first book in the Carlos Castaneda series about Don Juan. And they talk about, well, if Carlos Castaneda wants to change and he wants to understand the Toltec lifestyle and sort of get out of his little white privilege American world and, and see something new, then he has to leap into an abyss. He gets to a point where it's like, it's like taking the red pill or the blue pill in the matrix. You have to commit to this pathway. And if you're not willing to do it, then you're, you're not meant for the pathway and you're not going to be privileged to the teachings and the learnings because you're just not open to it. You have to take a risk. And it's such a great metaphor. And the idea is that you, he literally... And I don't know. It's a, it's a book. I don't think this really happened. Who knows? It might have really happened. He literally stares into a pit in the earth, can't see the bottom, and jumps. And that metaphor has stuck with me my whole life because so many times you get to the point where, should I take this job? Should I move? Should I date this girl? Should I break up with her? You know? You don't know the outcome of that change, that choice, and you do it, it's just like leaping into abyss where you don't know if you're going to hit the ground. Only in this case, the, the presumed bad outcome would be that you die, right? that you fall for six miles and hit the ground and splat, and you're done. And certainly that could be a very real, you know, maybe I should try heroin. I'm going to jump into it. And you overdose and die, right? Bad decision. But in the metaphor, generally death is not potential outcome. It's just severe discomfort. It could be, you know, continuum from not that bad to really bad. And this is really personal for me because my wife now, when we were dating, there was a lot going on. We were both divorced. She wanted another kid. I, I was hesitant. I was scared. And we kept using this metaphor to talk about our relationship. If we're going to continue this relationship, we need to get married. And that marriage is a huge leap into an abyss because we did not know the outcome for all these people. My kids, the nether kid, her, me, our families, we couldn't predict it, right? And for anybody getting married. But for some reason, after a divorce and when you have children, it's just more involved. And the abyss seemed darker and deeper and more risky. And I remember having this conversation with her and I said, I'm just, I know I have to jump into the abyss. I just can't. I'm not ready and I don't think we should. And she's like, I've already jumped. And it just it changed my life. And I jumped with her, and uh, I, it's the best decision I've ever made. But the point is, the metaphor really works, right? It, it's a really good one, and we're so resistant. And think about a world of people who constantly jumped into abysses every day. Our ancestors, for millions of years, or a couple hundred thousand years, Homo sapiens, woke up and jumped right into an abyss. Every day, multiple times a day, and they survived, and they got us to where we are. We owe it to them to continue the strategy that worked, right? I mean, why would if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, you talk about you see something that's wrong, and you want to change it. Okay, that's understandable. But if you see something that's right, <laughs> you don't necessarily think about changing it. Sometimes you do. Certainly, I mean, change is good. But we survive on this risk-taking behavior, and yet we've gotten so soft and we're scared and don't want to change. And it's like our evolution is the, the common theme of our current path as a species is to minimize the risk of the future and to maximize the sameness. And I talked about this before. It's conformity to behavior 
That's the that's the rule of the future. And I and I think my argument with the R versus should problem is that that is the explanatory variable for all of our problems. <laughs> and we in fact need to re-embrace being open to change and leaping to into abysses um, as the strategy for moving us through and navigating the future. That's how we do it. We see things that need to be changed and we change them for better or worse. And maybe you change something and it gets worse. Well, you change it again. And eventually through that iterative process, you find something that's better. And you continue down that path. And you do that for a while. That's what's worked. And yet in the last maybe 12,000 years, at least the last couple hundred years, We've totally changed that model, thrown it out. Well, no more of that crap. Change is hard. Let's simplify things. We want it to be easy. And it reminds me of that movie Wally. We're all going to end up riding all these little carts with our screens, and, and we're going to be unhealthy, and we're not going to have any experiences outside looking at our screen. And there could be a person standing right next to us, but we'll be trying to talk to a screen of their reflection because we don't understand anymore that that's what we'll become. And maybe that's a little bit dramatic. But my point is, we used to embrace change, or at least accept it as the mechanism of progress, right? And now we're saying it's the exact opposite, that not changing is how we're going to progress. And I just totally disagree with that. And I think in the R versus should problem, not changing is a massive should, and change is our R. Change is in our DNA. And so here's the the sort of final point uh, on this, is that the assumption I make in the R versus should problem is that we are driven by our DNA and that our DNA has motives, one, to live forever, and that's why we sexually reproduce and want to be successful and continue that path of DNA so that it, in effect, lives through time. Because otherwise, if everybody died right now, the DNA is dead too. And without a body to live in, the DNA is just going to, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but presumably it wants to propagate itself. That's life, right? I mean, that's very basic. You don't have to believe that the DNA wants to do that and knows and aware of it has a consciousness or any of that stuff. But that's what it was made for. And then secondarily, as individual people, it's our responsibility to our DNA and our ancestors and our species and natural selection and evolution and all that stuff to what I call realize our DNA and be what it was meant to be and make a contribution to ourselves, the earth, the universe, our other people, other animals, the whole thing. Because that can help alter that our evolution, right? Maybe not as an individual species, but as a group. So there's two essential um, pathways assumed by the existence of DNA, in my opinion, my assumption. One, to live forever and to propagate the species. And two to as the species being the whole, right? To, 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 to appease the whole and to address the whole and to work for the whole and love the whole. And then as individuals, to do, hey, what, what can I achieve based on this random assortment of, or not random, but you know, these, this, this assortment of DNA and what is me that came from my parents and a couple of random mutations maybe and some other stuff, um, slightly different. Do I have, what slightly different contribution do I have to make? Uh, as an individual. So there's two meanings to life. What can I do as an individual based on my DNA and how can I help pass my DNA into the next generation and, and help influence it, make it better. Inherent to that whole process is what? Change. 
My parents had both had their own unique DNA. They got together. It changed. It became me. I can get together with somebody else, my wife, my first wife, make new kids, change the DNA into them. I can change myself or allow myself, really, this is just getting out of my own way, allow my DNA to fully express itself beyond my blonde hair and my blue eyes and my six-foot skinny frame, beyond all the sort of phenotypic and genotypic measurable things. The collective whole of all that is the contribution that I have to make to the world, just like you, just like everybody. That's all, you know, I'm not going to say it's predetermined in our DNA, you know, because it interacts with our environment. It's like, you know, it's the ultimate expression of your DNA because it considers the environment that you're in. And it says, okay, I'm DNA. I'm a baby. I'm born. What would you give me to work with? That's going to be different for every combination of every person through time, right? So part of it, you know, is about the DNA itself and the whole and the community and all that stuff. And part of it, and, and that is environment, and part of it is environmental. So there's what's What's pre-scripted in your DNA based on the reproduction in your parents and the gametes that they form. Okay. But that evolves through time as an individual. And so that can also change, (laughs) right? Is it changing in a positive way? And the changes directly reflect the environment in which you're in. So there's the DNA itself and how it is propagated just by reproduction, isolated from the environment. And then there's the change that's because of the environment. It's extrinsic and intrinsic parts. And, and, and again, it's this bifurcated path. It's this twofold uh, purpose that all humans have by, under my definition. And the R versus should problem is drastically screwing that up <laughs> by slowing the process of change, making us more uniform, uh, and denying the development of new ideas. And, 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 and yeah. So my point in doing this investigation into the R versus should problem is to just keep pushing it and look for holes and see we can find the weaknesses and see if there's a cohesive plan that convinces me and therefore other people that there is something to this idea that living more in our R is actually going to you know, be the most upstream way we can solve the downstream problems of humans on Earth. And, and, and you know, coincidentally, reducing the should part. It's going to allow us to be freer and more peaceful and all of those things. I just, I'm, I'm so far I'm convinced. I'm, I'm not finding a whole lot of evidence to suggest that I'm not on to something. Um, and fundamental to that is re-embracing change. And that's, that'll be in the how-to. Is like one of the things we have to learn how to do is to be scared, to jump into as many abysses as possible, to, to, to realize that the iterative process forward is to identify problems, be open to changing those problems, and continue to do that process until we find something that's better. Because change is the natural way things happen. If there's any one thing related to our biology as human beings on planet Earth, in our universe is that change is going to happen, and then we happen to have this kick-ass way of dealing with that change. But we're totally doing it wrong. We're totally ignoring it. By minimizing change, we're, we're, we're spitting in the face of our ancestors and ourselves. We've forgotten, but that doesn't mean we can't remember. 
This has been Knowledge Plus Experience Equals Wisdom, Episode 62, The R versus Should Problem Change. I'm Chris Bercher. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks. Take it easy.